Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a library standing there behind no my Haida my Kiara and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Enika, brought to you from our home studios. Kiara Enika, you're Alison. Well, many of our listeners will know that the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards finalists have been announced. So we've got um, 160 entries um, have now been distilled down to a short list of 16 finalists. So we're calling that our sweet 16. <laughs> now, we've already had a look at the general fiction category, um, but today we're going to have a look at the four finalists in the general non-fiction category. And those four titles are From the Centre, A Writer's Life by Patricia Grace, published by Penguin Random House. The Alarmist, 50 Years Measuring Climate Change by Dave Lowe and published by Teheringawaka University Press. And uh, Dave Lowe is a debut author on the list. The Mirror Book by Charlotte Grimshaw, published by Vintage and Penguin Random House. And Voices from the New Zealand Wars, Hereo no Nga Pakanga o Aotearoa by Vincent O'Malley. And that's published by Bridget Williams Books. So we're going to kick it off with a whip through of a title that we've actually reviewed in a previous episode, and that's The Mirror Book. Yeah, so I'll take this one. So The Mirror Book um, is uh, a memoir by Charlotte Grimshaw, and um, I can do this one pretty quickly. <laughs> so Charlotte Grimshaw, as much as I'd like to spend more time mm. on her, now she's an award-winning, critically acclaimed writer who grew up in Auckland in the 1970s and 80s in a famous literary family. Her father, C.K. Stead, is possibly one of New Zealand's best-known literary figures. Now, Charlotte's memoir has been described as brave, thought-provoking and explosive. It's the story of a dysfunctional and chaotic family, a very well-known family, and the myth about her life that everyone believed, including Charlotte herself, was that she came from a lovely family with a house full of books. She writes about repressive family narratives. Um, many people will relate to this. All families have a narrative of one sort or, or another. Um, and sometimes no one really knows what goes on behind closed doors. It's just the truth about some families is going to be more shocking than others. Now, the book has a, a great deal of detail about growing up in Auckland in the 70s and 80s. It was a really interesting social history. But we see the landscape from the, the gritty, grimy urban streets to the, the beautiful Waitakere Ranges and those West Coast beaches. Social history of going along to Auntie Springbok to a protest with her liberal parents in 1981 anti-nuclear protests, music festivals like Sweetwaters, and seeing bands like The Clash perform in Auckland. So the impetus for writing the book seems to have been both a, a health crisis and a marriage crisis. And both of these things have forced Charlotte into a great deal of introspection. And she went into therapy and started re-examining the narratives around her life. Mm. 
Now, look, um, it's fair to say the book's caused quite a stir. I mean, no one questions her right to document her story, but there is a vocal cohort of people who say she shouldn't have published, um, and that includes members of her own family. You know, and it's a really interesting conversation and conundrum that crops up around memoir writing because at what point does loyalty to those you love give way to the need to tell the truth? So it's it's a classic question, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So now at last year's Writers' Festival, when she was asked about all the sort of noise and concern that the book had generated, Charlotte said to the audience, well, look, if people keep going on and on at me, I'll write volume two. And this was met with a huge round of applause. <laughs> so, look, our verdict... Totally compelling and unputdownable, really interesting, and we are certainly looking forward to volume two. <laughs> we are. <laughs> well, <laughs> this year we've been so blessed with two magnificent memoirs from Wahine Tour of Writing um, in the finals. So this second one is From the Centre, A Writer's Life by Patricia Grace. Now, Patricia Grace is one of Aotearoa's most celebrated writers. She's received numerous national and international literary awards for her short stories and novels. And I believe that she's now in her early 80s and has been writing for um, since she was, well, since she was a young girl and um, started publishing when she was around 25. Now, Patricia Grace broke a path for Māori women writers and that legacy um, stretches so far. The mm. work continues to inspire so many writers and um, she is still writing to this day. Now, this memoir is rooted deep in whakapapa and in whenua right from the outset. We open with Patricia in her home in Hongaweka Bay, her notebooks on her lap in front of the big window and she's surrounded by light and birdsong. Now, she's got a study in her house, but she tells us that her writing is usually done in the heart of the home, wherever the people are and wherever life is happening. The first third of the book is filled with this rich history and personal memories of her many-stranded family, um, her Pākehā Irish mother and her Māori father, who is Ngāti Toa, Ngāti Raukawa and Te Ate Awa. Her family on both sides is really large. Um, they're loving and close-knit, and her mother has deep connections with her father's family and ensures that um, Patricia and her um, her brother are always brought back to the family land and uh, um, deep uh, within their cousins and, um, and aunties and uncles and grandparents um, on both sides. Um, her grandfather brings home comics for the both of them and those inspire a lot of um, wonderful reading and imaginative play. Her father reads her fairy tales and he works in a stationary business um, which inspired um, scenes in Cousins, you might remember. Oh, and he yes. Brings, yeah. And he brings home pencils and notebooks um, from his work. Um, Patricia actually ended up working in that that uh, stationary factory and we see that in Cousins too. Now both of the families are filled with storytellers and orators so it's, it's not surprising that Patricia was so talented mm. in this area. Now the families really provide her with the stability and care that she needs and a measure of protection because there are prejudiced comments and attitudes that she receives during her schooling in particular where she's the only Māori girl in her class for a really long time. There's a really strong influence of teachers on her life and this is very notable. She became a teacher herself. Um, teachers um, often underestimated her abilities and ambitions purely because she was Māori. Mm. And um, sadly, she notes in the book that this continues today in classrooms and is something that needs to be uh, fixed 
apps, you know, is well overdue for being fixed. Yeah. And um, she has many teachers, though, who recognise her, her skills and her abilities and they encourage her to aim high. Now, she goes to Wellington's Teachers College, and this is a real creative hub um, at the time um, with lots of emphasis on development, personal development through the arts. She's introduced to Frank Sargison's stories, and these show her that everyday family life in Aotearoa is worth putting on the page. She hasn't really had much experience of reading stories about New Zealand families before. And then she reads Amelia Banastich, and this opens up to the importance of different voices, you know, hearing from different voices. And then she's led on to Hone Tufare, uh, Witi Ahimaira, and many more Māori writers, um, and she joins joins their canon. Yeah, mm. she joins them. <laughs> now, she writes, and she's she is writing throughout her time and submitting um, to literary journals and short story competitions and so on and getting getting good success. Um, a career in teaching happens. Um, she falls in love and gets married and has children with her supportive rock of a husband, Dick. There's some beautiful photos of um, family photos right through this memoir, I should say. And, um, and Dick and Patricia are an absolutely gorgeous couple. The writing happens in short bursts with Patricia. She's fitting it in in the evenings and in school holidays, after all the chores, and when the kids are in bed or out off playing in the fields. Now, this is so common for women's women's writing, yes, you isn't know. It? Yeah, yep, you hear that so often. It's so true. So published in 1975, her first book of short stories is Waiareki, and this is the first book of short stories published um, by Wahine Māori, and it wins this year that year's um, National Book Award for Best First Fiction. So this is the big first big national award that she wins. Other story collections and novels follow. Um, Mutu Whenua, Portiki, Cousins, they're all written while raising her growing family. She's moving from one place to the next and she even establishes a school um, working alongside Dick to teach um, to teach children. Um, at one point, at some point, she does um, put the teaching aside and she focuses fully on her writing and on, on her family life. Now, she insists on including Te Reo Māori Kupu without translation in her published works and this is a real sea change for local publishing. We're still, you know, benefiting from those mm. that today. This is, you know, early on in the piece. It needed to change and she, she made it happen. Her 1975 novel, Pōtiki, showed readers Māori families who weren't just surviving but they were thriving and working together to, um, to stop development of their whenua. Life and art actually intertwine many times um, throughout the memoir. Um, her family passed and present, they resisting multiple attempts to break up their land and they end up um, planting it firmly in place. Um, they establish a marae complex and whanui for Ngāti Toa in Hongaweka Bay, where this book begins and ends, and where Patricia still lives. Now, there's a real fascination with people um, at the heart of her writing, what they do and say, how they interact with each other. She loves people. Um, she doesn't. She lets us know that she doesn't write to schedules or contracts. The writing takes as long as it takes, and life doesn't go on hold for her writing. And you'll be amazed at what um, Patricia manages to achieve while also doing all this incredible mm. writing. She has wonderful advice for Indigenous writers. She says, the world is where you are. She suggests that you take what you know, but then stretch it and shape it to show the many faces of it and to show its many facets to others. 
Now, Patricia Grace has always advocated for Māori kids seeing their lives and stories on the page, and there's some great stories and examples of this in the book. On her insistence, The Kuia and the Spider of 1981 was the first picture book to be published in Te Reo Māori, and she delivered a landmark speech at an early childhood education conference in 1987, which really put the cat among the pigeons. She said, if there are no books which tell us about ourselves, but tell us only about others, that makes you invisible in the world of literature, and that is dangerous. Now, and this, that's the truth. Yep, and it started yeah. conversations that, you know, when we look at um, the growing strength of publishing for kids um, in a range of languages, you know, these these are conversations that have to happen to have this, have um, a growing industry and support for our kids. Um, yeah, incredible, really blew me away. Um, the structure of the book's really in keeping with her fiction writing and her kaupapa. Um, it begins with whakapapa and tipuna, then Fano writing and whenua are all sort of growing and developing together and each is making the other stronger. And it finishes with a call to action to protect our environment, our tayo, and it has a beautiful poem to end. The genesis of many of her most loved stories is shared in this book and you can see how um, these connect with significant moments in her life and show her close observation of the world and how we move through it. There's lovely extracts of her writing um, in the memoir which will absolutely drive you to go and grab everything you can mm. find by Patricia Grace and dive mm. in. <laughs> now, I absolutely loved um, how Patricia's quiet but determined strength and resolve shone through in this book um, as a writer and an activist, a mother, a leader and a poe for those around her. Well, she's got this unerring instinct um, you can see running right through her life for knowing when action is needed and she's got the mana to mobilise others to join her in making that positive change happen it's a hugely inspiring story and it will stay with you and as i say it will drive you to um to either dive or revisit into her writing oh that's that's great yeah i she's such a loved beloved woman yeah, and writer, isn't she? yeah love her well look i think this um sort of segues quite nicely into the the next finalist that i'm mm. about to talk about and this is um vincent o'malley's uh, voices from the new zealand wars published by bridget williams books now um as some of us will know new zealand's slowly emerging from its amnesia uh for want of a better word, about the 19th century New Zealand wars. For so long, these conflicts have been lost in a fog of denial and shame. Um, and there's now um, a growing interest in these wars, and they're being viewed these days as having shaped Aotearoa New Zealand's history and society as, as much as, if not more than, the two world wars. Mm. And so this beautiful book is... Um, a book of first-person accounts of those who fought in the wars and um, its aim is to bring the people's stories alive. Now, um, historian Vincent O'Malley has played an integral role in this shift um, through all his advocacy. He's been tireless over the years mm. and he's had some earlier very um, acclaimed books, uh, The Great War for New Zealand, Waikato 1800 to 2000, and The New Zealand Wars, um, the uh, sort of the precursor to this one. So um, now 
getting back to the New Zealand wars, they stretched across about 30 years from 1845 to 1872, ranging from the Bay of Islands in the north to Wairo near Blenheim in the south, and with a lot of action in um, the Waikato and Taranaki. And some of the individual stories from those wars are better known than others. Um, many people know about the defiance of Te Koti, um, Honeheke and his repeated sabotage of British flagpoles, the Parihaka tragedy slash massacre, um, which occurred right at the end of the official time frame of the conflict. So... When I picked up the book, I was struck by how beautiful it was, and I was planning to dip in and out of it. Um, my initial plan was I was going to use the extensive index um, to search for the iwi and hapu that are close to my heart. But I, what happened to me was I found that the narrative drew me in so much that I basically started reading it from the beginning, and I couldn't put it down. Mm. So I just sort of did it in a more linear fashion. Um, it's so, so beautifully presented and produced. You've got really clear illustrations and maps and handwritten letters, all on lovely glossy pages. It's it's a real object of beauty. Yes, it's, a, it's such an incredibly rich set of resources that Samalos has managed to combine here. You've got um, extracts from diaries, memoirs, letters, official documents, newspaper reports. There's meticulous scholarship and perfect editorial balance. I know that this book is going to go a long way towards raising the New Zealand wars even higher in the national consciousness. And this is very timely with the um, New Zealand history curriculum um, overhaul uh, rolling out in schools. Yes, absolutely. Mm. In the introduction, O'Malley reminds us that um, the New Zealand wars were largely a series of separate and locally influenced events and battles, and that really their influence on our history cannot be underestimated. Mm. Um, As a result of the New Zealand wars um, arose the native land courts and the native school system, and these, of course, stripped Māori of both their land and their language. So... Um, which is only really, (laughs) there's still so much work to be done in that area. Yes, that's right. The legacy continues today, doesn't it? One of the things I found really interesting um, is that um, O'Malley has reflected, and he's done this before actually, on the parallels between the Māori experience and the Irish settler experience. Because um, he says that Ireland was the original blueprint for British imperialism. And... um, It's interesting how many dispossessed Irish Catholic men found themselves fighting on the side of the empire in New Zealand. They almost got here accidentally. Mm. Um, And um, another historian, Charlotte MacDonald, showed in an earlier book that um, about two-thirds of the rank-and-file British troops were actually Irish. But, of course, they were the rank-and-file. They weren't the the officers. Ah, Mm-hmm. Of course. Mm-hmm. And um, O'Malley says that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that these Irish troops became increasingly disillusioned with the wars that they were fighting in in New Zealand. And they actually asked themselves why they were fighting wars that were benefiting the settlers. Mm. 
Now, there was a notable Irish officer, um, and he was Dr. Morgan Grace. Interesting that um, he's another person with the surname yeah, right. Grace. Mm. Good, good Irish name. And Morgan Grace was from County Tipperary in Ireland. He was born, um, they think, in about 1837. So he trained as a medical doctor in Dublin and then um, joined the British Army in 1859 as a staff assistant surgeon, and he was immediately sent out to New Zealand. So he arrived in Auckland with some British troops in 1860, and he served as medical officer in the first Taranaki War, the invasion of Waikato, and then in subsequent campaigns. But um, Grace, William Grace, uh, not William Grace, Morgan Grace, was um, a writer as well as a doctor. And he published a short book in 1899, actually, called A Sketch of the New Zealand Wars. And he referred to the British military as blundering asses and the Māori as fine fellows. Now, his conclusion was that the Māori were never actually conquered. He reckoned that they merely ceased fighting when they realised that a Māori kingdom had basically become an impossibility. So Grace's experience of the Māori had been as warriors and he respected them immensely. But um, his view on the land question was less sympathetic. And I think these days you could probably view his land uh, views uh, quite unfavourable, mm. uh, quite unfavourably. What happened to my adverbs? <laughs> I mustn't have had enough pizza today. Um, Whose fault is that? Right, <laughs> getting back to the narrative. Right, so anyway, Grace believed that um, Maori title to land had been obtained by conquest and occupation and um, that while he agreed Maori had been robbed of their land, he considered the Europeans had been robbed of their money. And I think this... Viewpoint. Yeah, very interesting and quite controversial. But just including this in... In the book, I think it speaks to the impeccable scholarship of the book and the editorial decisions that have been made um, in the production of the book. Um, Dr. Grace's words would be excellent for students to study and use to use these words to develop their critical thinking skills. Because if we look at these sort of views through the lens of 2022, I think his thoughts would seem quite contradictory but this is where a good history teacher comes in and you know they could teach the nuances of the arguments and you know what was of of its time and and whatnot so I really believe that voices from the New Zealand wars by Vincent O'Malley should be a core element of every every library every school library every library and it's going to be an asset for researchers for years to come so it's quite something now, um, our next one that we're going to look at, um, moving into the 20th century, um, a great memoir called The Alarmist, 50 Years of Measuring Climate Change by Dave Lowe. And it's published by Te Heringa Waka University Press. And um, Dave, Dave Lowe is a, a debut author. Now, he was born in 1946. He's um, a New Zealand atmospheric chemist, and this is his memoir. It's um, the story of a life lived to the full. And, you know, I've got to say, I loved this book. 
Um, he, as we said earlier, he's a debut author. And up until this stage, he's really only written scientific papers. So he's pretty talented guy because this book is amazing. So now, 50 years ago, as a young scientist fresh out of Victoria University in Wellington, Dave Lowe helped establish the Bering Head Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide Program. And Bering Head is an incredibly windblown outcrop of land at the bottom of the North Island. And um, this, the Bering Head Atmospheric Research Station, which is now run by NIWA, is an internationally recognised site that is contributing to global scientific studies and climate change and um, the impact of humankind on the Earth's atmosphere. Because the air arriving at this site has basically come straight up from part of the Antarctica where there is no human activity. And so it therefore gives us a pure baseline level in parts per million of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Now, Dave Lowe was also the lead author of an um, intergovernmental panel on climate change paper in 2007 and this report won him or the team the Nobel Peace Prize for that year. So he's a very accomplished person. Now he's basically worked for his entire career to measure the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and to try and demonstrate how this is contributing to climate change and in particular the greenhouse effect and global warming. He's still a professor of atmospheric chemistry at the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University of Wellington. But this is his memoir. So as well as the, the scientific, we've got the personal. So we've got stories about growing up in rural Taranaki in the 1950s, about surfing, playing the guitar, falling in love with science, but taking a while to do so because of unhappiness at school, about his university days, getting married way too young and then regretting this a few years later, hitchhiking around Europe, working in California, that conundrum of American life that he observed. He enjoyed many aspects of the culture, but he was always seeing the effects of excessive consumerism. And this was even way back in the 70s. Mm. And his um, scientific discoveries get um, woven throughout the book and throughout the narrative of his life. And we observe his increasing horror as he observes CO2 levels rising from 323 parts per million to 410 parts per million, which is a disaster. Um, and you see his despair during the decades when no one actually took him seriously. When, you know, he'd make warnings about climate change and he just got met by denial, denial, denial. Now, the book's really accessible. He shows us the science behind his observations of the rising CO2 levels. Um, but a layperson would get um, most of the sciencey stuff in the book. I completely nerded out over it, as usual. Um, I loved all the reproductions of his workings, the handwritten equations and hypotheses. Certainly right up my, my alley. <laughs> um, but we, it's a witness to his life and his growth to maturity, learning from the mistakes made in his early relationships, the abject grief and sorrow when his father died and all those things that they never said to each other, the stupid arguments they'd had, etc. Um, meeting and falling in love with his second wife and, and the birth of his children. 
And then also you get the sense of vindication more recently as, as climate change becomes a thing, an accepted thing. And how is hope now is where it really lies in the younger generation who have basically inherited a complete mess and are rightly angry about it. And he's, he talks a lot about what a fan he is of Greta Thunberg. So this is a hopeful book, but it's also a snapshot of New Zealand life of 70 years in Aotearoa. Um, and he's a man still contributing hugely to our society. He plays the guitar in a band and he's still surfing, but just not those big ocean waves. <laughs> and look, I think this is a book that thoroughly deserves its place in the final of the New Zealand Book Awards. Wonderful. Well, that wraps us up. With the um, look out for the um, 2022 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, um, there's going to be um, an in-person show and it will be online. So visit nzbookawards.nz for all of the details. And remember, you can request and borrow all of our finalists from the Ockhams this year from our libraries and online. Have you got any predictions for the winner of this category, Alison? Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I'm thinking either From the Centre by Patricia Grace or Voices from the New Zealand Wars. What about you, Annika? Look, it's a hard call, but I'm going to go with my, my initial gut feeling and say the mirror book, um, just because I want to see, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, oh, good on you. Yeah, we're going to tune in from our sofas with a glass of bubbly ready to toast the winners, whoever they are. We sure will. I've got the bubbly ch- chilling already <laughs> in the fridge. Well, look, thanks, Inika, and to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. Take care and happy reading. Hairera, kakite ano. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day.